Our leader will now share for 20 to 25 minutes describing what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Our leader for tonight is Scott. Hello everybody, my name is Scott and I am a compulsive overeater. I'm having a kind of a hard time of late. I recently lost another pet. Um, for, for many years, my two cats and I were kind of like my own little family and now they're both gone. 14 months ago, I lost my oldest cat. Um, the vet found a tennis ball sized tumor in her stomach and one week after that, I found her dead in my living room. And um, 11 days ago, my other cat was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And within about an hour of that diagnosis, I had them put to sleep. So I really uh, miss them both. I feel really sad, I feel really lonely, but I feel. And it has not occurred to me even one time to eat over this. You know how two wrongs don't make a right? Well, two hurts don't make a fix either. And, you know, I'm already hurting over Dexter's death. And if I ate over this, I'd be hurting more. And in the process, I would be doing something that's very anti-step seven. I would be playing the role of God and um, delaying my healing process from this. But anyway, I'm really grateful to be here. I'm always grateful to be at an OA meeting. Although I have to be honest with you, the Zoom meetings don't feel like OA meetings to me, but that's another discussion for another time, perhaps. Tonight, I want to talk to newcomers, mostly. So for anyone here tonight who's new to OA, I just want to say, welcome home. For anyone here tonight who's new to OA and coming to us via AA or NA, I just want to say, Welcome to the big leagues. I feel like what we do here is incredibly difficult. And in terms of my own recovery, I'm at a place now where I fully trust in my five senses. And what I have observed around me is a lot of people are misusing food. And as a compulsive overeater, when I see a lot of people around me misusing food, I feel as though that gives me permission to misuse food myself. Imagine that I am an alcoholic who needs to get sober and society around me is drinking alcoholically. I would imagine it'd be hard for me to get sober if that was the case. It's almost as if the disease of compulsive overeating is an accepted addiction. So this stuff is incredibly difficult. Another thing that makes the OA recovery program so difficult is our version of sobriety it kind of differs from member to member. It's not as clear cut as it is in AA or NA. In AA, all they have to do is stop drinking alcohol. In NA, all they have to do is stop using street drugs. And even in Nicotine Anonymous, all they have to do is stop using nicotine products. So this stuff is really difficult. And I, I intentionally chose those three fellowships because I feel like they deal with the three addictions that get the most respect. For some reason, the disease of compulsive overeating isn't really that respected. And maybe that's why so many people are doing it. Or maybe it's, you know, so many people are doing it because people don't, you know, respect it. It's kind of like the chicken or the egg question, right? So, as a compulsive overeater, when someone presents to me a chicken or the egg question, I just say, yes, please. I love chicken and I love eggs. 
So um, as a newcomer, you may have noticed, or maybe not yet, but um, if you keep coming back, you may notice that a lot of us here abstain from specific foods, food groups, or ingredients. Now, OA as a whole doesn't take a stance on anything, including food, food blends, ingredients, but individual members here may abstain from specific foods, food groups, or ingredients. And the reason why we do that is because we and or our sponsors believe that those specific foods, food groups, or ingredients are keeping alive within each of us the phenomenon of cravings. And cravings are incredibly difficult to deal with. I mean, imagine during your waking hours, someone is constantly tapping on your shoulder. I mean, I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time getting anything done in life. I would have a hard time getting any work done. I would have a hard time giving you the attention that you deserve. I would have a hard time driving in heavy duty Bay Area rush hour traffic. So this stuff is incredibly difficult. So one of the things about abstaining from specific foods, food groups, or ingredients is that it is believed that over time, by abstaining, um, the cravings will decrease and for some of us, completely go away. And, um, you know, allow for some peace to come into, into our lives. So I am someone who abstains from specific ingredients, but even within what I do, there are some complexities with that. Although there is a lot of black and whiteness to what I do, there is some gray as well, which adds to how difficult this stuff is. For example, I don't do refined white table sugar or anything closely related to it. I don't do powdered sugar. I don't do brown sugar. Um, now, for a long time, um, I had a plan of eating that included um, a break in abstinence if I knowingly put anything into my body that had white refined table sugar within the top five ingredients, right? If I knowingly, and I say knowingly because intent matters, if I knowingly put something in my mouth um, with sugar within the top five ingredients and swallowed it, it would be a break in my abstinence. Um, abstinence is what I get when I follow my plan of eating for any number of consecutive days, right? Abstinence is what I get when I follow my plan of eating for any number of consecutive days, right? So, for example, if I follow my plan of eating for one day, I have one day of abstinence. If I follow my plan of eating for 18 consecutive days, I have 18 days of abstinence. If I follow my plan of eating for 365 consecutive days, I have 365 days or one year of abstinence, right? Abstinence is to the compulsive overeater what sobriety is to the alcoholic. Abstinence is our way of measuring success in terms of the physical part of this three-headed monster called compulsive overeating, right? So anyway, for a long time, I had this plan of eating. If I knowingly put anything into my mouth with sugar in the top five ingredients, it would have been a break in my abstinence. I then went through a phase where for many years I was really against sugar and I wouldn't even eat anything if sugar was the 20th ingredient. Not that I'm eating anything with 20 ingredients in it, don't get me wrong, but I think you know what I mean. These days, I kind of treat sugar in the same way, except there is this one unsexy exception 
where sugar is listed as the fourth ingredient. And for whatever reason, it does not kick up, kick up cravings in me. And as a newcomer, this is another thing that you'll discover is that everyone's different. I mean, our basic biology, chemistry, physiology is the same, but there are unique things about us that make us different. And you'll find that there are people in the rooms, a lot of people who can handle sugar. There are people who can't handle any sugar. And then there's people like me who fall somewhere in the middle, but lean more towards, you know, unable to handle sugar, right? Um, another thing that I abstain from is wheat products because I am physically addicted to white flour. I am not addicted to coconut flour. I'm not addicted to cassava flour. I am physically addicted to that cheap, nutrient-deficient white flour that you can find on the shelves of many popular grocery stores and inside of many popular cheap baked goods. I don't do corn products. I don't do rice products. Now, rice products is really interesting because I don't eat actual rice, but about twice a month, I may eat something that has a little bit of rice bran oil in it. And I also take nutritional supplements that have rice products in the gelatin capsules. In both cases, um, cravings are not triggered. Uh, potato products. Now, this one actually fascinates me. I have met a handful of people in the rooms of OA who can't do potato products with the exception of Japanese sweet potatoes. Well, you can now include me among that group of people. For whatever reason, I can't handle potato products except for Japanese sweet potatoes. Those do not trigger cravings in me. I also don't do meat. I don't do poultry. I don't do fish. I don't do dairy products. I don't do artificially sweetened foods or beverages. And I also don't do, artif uh, I don't do caffeinated foods or beverages either. And I say caffeinated foods or beverages because when I was into the food, I used to eat a lot of chocolate and chocolate has caffeine in it, right? So, um... The result of that restrictive way of living, you know, what I get for that handful of black and white acts is a life full of gray. I have a lot of freedom that comes with that. Um, the cravings are completely gone from my system. I now know the difference between hunger and cravings. Hunger is natural. Cravings are not natural. Hunger is um, a product of Mother Nature. Cravings are a man-made phenomenon. Hunger is a sign of good health. Cravings are a sign of ill health, right? Now, I didn't give up all those things at once. It's been a very slow process, one by one, where I've given things up. So if you are new to OA, I don't want to scare you. And again, everyone has a different way of doing this. This is just my story. Um, uh, another thing I wanted to say is um, I hope that you as a newcomer um, at some point feel comfortable enough working with another compulsive overeater that you may or may not call your sponsor and hopefully that you can talk to them about your food history with honesty, with open-mindedness, with willingness, and with humility. So um, just a few personal statistics. I am 47 years old. I came to my first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous at age 28. That means that I've been in the OA fellowship for between 19 and 20 years. My highest known weight is 315 pounds, 315. 
I have been at a hundred plus pound weight loss number for the better part of the last eight years. As a newcomer, my waist size was 44, today it's 34. And I've also had a number of medical, psychiatric, neurological, and cognitive health issues completely healed without doctors, without nurses, without therapists, without exercise, and without medication. Just by overhauling what goes into my mouth versus what does not go into my mouth. All right? So today is July 14th, 2020. Today, Mrs. Wright and I are celebrating 27 months together. Two weeks ago, on July 1st, I celebrated 10 years of abstinence, which followed seven years of relapse. In four days, I'll turn 48 years old. And in two days, I will be moving. I know, I can't believe I'm moving again. It was about 21 months ago where I moved from San Francisco to Concord, California, after having lived in San Francisco for over 44 years, and in two days, I am moving out of Concord, California. More on that later. So I want to spend the rest of my, my time tonight discussing my experience, strength, and hope with step nine, and um, if I have time, I'll, I'll also get into step two a little bit. I have a brand new home meeting as of, as of about a year ago that's actually on Tuesday nights, and um, we are studying step nine this month, so I thought that I would share my experience of step nine with, um, with my former home meeting. So um, it's been my experience that step nine is not only the second most difficult step to practice, but it's the most unfair step of the 12. And I'll share with you why I feel that way. So a couple of months ago, a sponsee of mine um, was telling me about an amends he needed to make to one of his housemates. Now, this is a housemate that apparently, according to my sponsee, owes him an amends. And historically, this housemate of his has never been good at owning up to his stuff. So my sponsee came back to me and was saying, well, this is really unfair. Why should I owe him an amends? Uh, why should I make an amends to him when he clearly owes me an amends and has never been good about, you know, apologizing and changing his behaviors around me? And I said to him, I know, I know, I get it. I, it step nine can be incredibly unfair. And I have my own version of that story. So about seven years ago, um, I needed to make an amends, including a financial amends, to an ex-girlfriend of mine. Now, this ex-girlfriend um, owed me some money. So before the amends process, I went to my sponsor and I said to him, you know, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to deduct the money that she owes me from the financial amends I'm about to make. And, you know, that way, um, you know, I'll be good with the money she owes me. And my sponsor looked at me and said, no, this is not how you do it. Um, whether or not she pays you back is, be, is between she and her higher power, and you're not her higher power. It's your job to take care of your side of the street. Now, I thought that was kind of messed up. I didn't get it, but, you know, he was my sponsor, and he was right, right, you know, way more times than not, and I decided to follow his good orderly direction. And I ended up making the amends, including giving her the full amount. And, you know, we're talking about seven years later, and I have not seen one penny of the money she owes me. 
which is fine. I mean, trust me, I've moved on financially. I'm doing really well. And um, even with the economic crisis. And um, I'm a big believer in just taking care of my side of, of the street. Um, another thing that makes Step 9 so unfair is that it's been my experience that the people that benefit from my ninth step amends are often from my present or future, not my past. The recipient of the, of the Step 9 amends is usually people from my past, but the ones who actually benefit from them are people from my present and my future. So I'll give you an example. Um, in two days, Mrs. Wright and I will be moving in together. We found a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, two-air-conditioned, two-patio apartment in Pleasant Hill, California, California, about 10 minutes from where I currently live. Now, I am incredibly excited. I cannot wait till this happens. I've been ready. Mrs. Wright, on the other hand, is really scared. She's really anxious. She's really upset. Um, when Mrs. Wright was growing up, she and her family moved around almost every year. And for the first time in Mrs. Wright's life, she's, she has a re really stable home. She's been in the same one-bedroom apartment in the Berkeley Hills for 10 years. And she's having a hard time not only letting go of that, but um, because of the st stability part, but she's having a hard time letting go of the cheap rent she has and the free utilities. And she gets along really well with the two people who own the house. So... Mrs. Wright is having a hard time with this. Now, um, a few years ago, I was making another amends, same ex-girlfriend, different amends. Um, one of her chief complaints of me is that whenever she was in emotional pain, I never physically comforted her. And you know what? She was absolutely correct. I never physically comforted her whenever she was in emotional pain. I have no problem with the truth as long as it is the truth. Um, what I would do instead is either walk away or just sit on the couch and, and watch or do nothing. So um, because we were done as a couple at that point, this needed to be um, more of a living amends, something that I would do with future partners if they wanted such a thing. So about two months ago, uh, Mrs. Wright and I got into a huge fight. I remember it was on a Sunday morning. And, you know, um, she started sobbing. And I've never seen Mrs. Wright sob like that. It was kind of scary. So Mrs. Wright sat on the edge of my bed sobbing. And I was about six feet away sitting on my couch watching. Sound familiar? And, um, you know, we've all ha seen the images of the devil and the angel on, on two different shoulders. So I had one of those devil and angel moments. To me, the devil is step one, the problem, my lower power, or the question. And the angel is step two, the solution, or the answer, um, or my higher power. So I'm sitting on the couch watching Mrs. Wright sob, and I'm having one of these devil-angel moments. The devil is on my left shoulder saying to me, she does not deserve your physical comfort right now. You cannot enable her to act like that and make you upset. Um, and then the angel on my right shoulder was saying, remember the, that amends you made to the former Mrs. Wright. You know what you need to do right now is get up off that couch and go over to Mrs. Wright and hold her. She really needs you right now. So I knew what the solution was. 
but I didn't want to do it because of my pride and ego, right? Pride is the absence of humility. Ego is the absence of a higher power. So what I did for the next five to 10 seconds is I practiced step 11. I prayed and I meditated with my higher power. It seemed longer than that because Mrs. Wright was sobbing. So I was really uncomfortable because of Mrs. Wright sobbing. So after I was done practicing my step 11, I, I practiced a proper step three and I got off my couch and I walked over to Mrs. Wright and I sat to her right as she was sobbing. I put my left, down, um, my left arm around her and I kind of tucked her head into my chest, into my heart. With my right hand, I took her glass of water and set it aside and I wrapped it around her. And I said to Mrs. Wright, I'm really sorry you're in so much pain. I, I, it really hurts me to see you hurting so much. And I left it at that. I didn't say anything else. I didn't try to fix anything. I just sat there and held her and let her do what she needed to do in that moment. And within about five minutes, the sobbing turned into mere crying. Within another five minutes, the crying turned into some sniffles. And then we spent the next hour laying on my bed together discussing the events of that morning. And I was brutally honest with Mrs. Wright. This thing that she did that morning was a big no-no in my book. And I'm not going to get into it here, but, um, you know, I'm not trying to judge Mrs. Wright. I'm trying to paint a picture of this moment for you. But Mrs. Wright is not the most humble person in the world. But for the first time in our relationship, she just listened to me. She didn't respond. She didn't snap back. She didn't make excuses. She just listened. And I cannot tell you, my heart just opened up so much. And after a few moments of me kind of giving her my side of the, the, the argument, she said, I know you're right. I know if I change this behavior, we'd both be happier. I don't know why I can't change it. And my heart just opened up more. And I even said to her, this is what I've been wanting for you for all this time. My heart is so open right now. So anyway, I share that story with you because it was not the former ex that benefited from that nine-step amends. It wasn't someone from my past who benefited from that nine-step amends. It was someone from my present and likely my future. So those are a couple reasons why I think step nine can be incredibly unfair. Um, I only have a couple minutes left. I'm going to say one last thing to any newcomers listening live or on the recording is look, you know, I opened up by talking about how difficult the OA recovery program is. I'm going to share one more story with you that I hope encapsulates exactly what I'm getting at. It's just a made up story, but I think you'll hear where I'm coming from. Imagine that I am a sober alcoholic and I am at a wedding and I want to participate in the celebration. So I reach for a drink. I have a feeling at least one other person at this wedding is going to try to stop me from having that first drink. Let's say that I'm someone else. Let's say that I am a compulsive overeater um, at the same wedding who happens to abstain from sugar and flour. And I want to participate in the celebration, so I reach for a slice of wedding cake that has sugar and flour in it. I'm not so sure that anyone at this wedding is going to try to stop me from taking that first compulsive bite. In fact, I am almost convinced that at least one other person is going to look at me and say, hey, right on. It's okay. You don't have to be that rigid with your new diet. Hey, it's okay to cheat sometimes, right? So um, in a nutshell, I hope that kind of, um, you know, that gets my message across. 
again, nothing against AA or Nicotine Anonymous or NA. I just feel like um, OA is like the graduate school of 12-step. You know, this stuff is complex. Um, it's a way for my family to tell tell me they love me. They can't. They, they literally cannot say the words "I love you." The way they do it's by either buying me food, cooking me food, or giving me money for food. And that that does not make them bad people. That's just who they are. And for those who can say "I love you," that doesn't make them good people either. That just that's what they have, right? So anyway, I hope that was helpful. Um, I'm done. Thanks for listening. Thank you.